Hi folks, a little bit of housekeeping before we let you listen to this episode of Shrapnel. And believe me, it's a cracker. It's 10 episodes old now and lots and lots and lots of you are listening. Can we ask some of you to take the time to go over to your player, whether it's Apple or Spotify or whatever it is, and leave a review. Click, click the old five stars and say you love it. It helps get Shrapnel up the charts and people see it. Maybe we might even get a few more listeners. Word of mouth, spread the word. If, if you enjoy it and you think it has a value, tell people about it. And the last thing is... We rely on you. If you have it, if you can pay it forward, we want to keep these podcasts free. We don't have any ads or sponsors, so it's down to listeners. How you do that is you join us on patreon.com forward slash tortoise And for that, there is a ton of extra content and you get it all plea free, all in one place. And you don't have to listen to me asking for your help. It's all in one feed. It'll come to your phone as quickly as I can produce them and turn them around. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for the support. And enjoy what is another excellent episode of what's building into a a fantastic series. Hello and welcome to the Shopnell Podcast. Tonight we have Paul Donnelly. Paul has been the lead tour guide at DC Tours since 2013. Before that, he worked in adult, community and political education earning the stripes in conflict resolution and mediation work. In 2019, he was voted UK Tour Guide of the Year at the Wanderlust World Guide Awards. Originally from North Belfast, Paul migrated across the river to the Craigie and is somewhat responsible for making the 6A Metro bus a very minor internet sensation. <laughs> he also supports Glen Torren. So, oh, yeah. welcome Paul and hello Sam. Hello, Gareth. Hello, Hi, Paul. Guys. What about you? Yep. Hi, Sam. How are you? So, Paul, I mean, it's... Um, in this one. I think when I was doing... Yeah. I think when I was doing the Hidden Histories pod, um, I'd asked you to come on as a guest, but then one thing or another, we didn't get it get it going. Yeah. Um, and then when myself and Sam talked about doing Shrapnel, you were one of the first names that was jotted down on the page back in April. So, you know, we've always wanted you on, so we're really glad you're doing it. Yeah. Delighted so, to be here, mate. Thank you. No pressure. Um, so basically, just to give people a bit of an idea, can you tell us when DC Tours was set up and how the History of Terror tour started? Yeah, no problem at all. It was uh, actually the, the origins were in 2012. Uh, Mark Wiley, who is the sort of founder and the, the brains behind DC Tours, uh, him and I went to the same school on a deal. Uh, we were queens together around the same time, and we had both been doormen and laveries back in our youth. And uh, Mark was sort of in between jobs. I was in between jobs. The Ulster People's College was coming to the end of its uh, tenure. Uh, I'd been made redundant and was trying to do bits and pieces of work, but there was nothing very sustainable. Mark's background's in anthropology, so he was sitting one night bored, and he was reading an article about uh, dark tourism. Why do people go to Campuchia? Why do people go to various hotspots around the world? And he thought about it, and he thought, you know what, in Belfast, yeah, we have the bus tours and the taxi tours. But he thought, there's a lack of walking tours. And then he started thinking about it more, and he thought, there's a lack of things in the city centre. It's all very West Belfast and East Belfast, all the traditional spots. And he started to come up with this idea of doing a walking tour pertaining to the conflict, because you have things that people do know about, like uh, Bloody Friday, the Abercorn bomb, various things. But there's a whole range of things that people have very little memory of, and there's very little record of. And uh, he sat and thought about this. So he spoke to his wife, uh, Vicky, and Vicky, he said, like, I've got this idea. But he said, I don't really know an awful lot about the substance of this in terms of what did happen and all the rest of it. And Vicky thought about it for a while, and then she came up with a mortal line. Why don't you speak to Don? So he knows everybody who shot everybody. And from there, DC Tours was born. Um, Mark, uh, we came up with the idea of, of developing this thing. That was in 2012. There was a huge amount of work went into the preparation. You don't just hit the streets in, a, in an ad hoc fashion about this. Uh, Mark particularly went off to the public records offices, obviously went into the, the depths of, good, of uh, lost lives and various other documentation. And then we did things like we literally walked certain streets in Belfast, measuring the distance, how you know, what incidents took place, how far would we... You know, it became very, very scientific in terms of the preparation. And then before we hit the streets, which was really, I think, March 2013, there have been several months of prep went in, we did a dry run on a Sunday. Uh, we invited people from civil society, family members, uh, people from uh, journalistic backgrounds, uh, people who had been some different ways involved in the conflict, some 
in some ways that you could talk about openly and some that you couldn't talk about openly. But it was a wide range of people from across different spectrums, politically and socially. And we did a dry run to see what worked and what didn't. And there was stuff came out of that which was very useful about what did work. There was one very specific thing we took out. People said, no, too too recent and standing in that, uh, that landscape, very close to where it happened and very close to... Uh, where some of the alleged perpetrators of this act might actually be in that physical zone. No, that's an absolute no-no. So stuff like that was invaluable. So we got to March 2013 and we sort of launched. We had leaflets. We put out a bit of publicity and we literally stood down at the front gates of the City Hall waiting for anybody to turn up. And for some time, not a lot of people turned up. Uh, But then that changed through a lot of different circumstances to the point today where DC Tours really has become multi-award winning and that's not just myself and the the, uh, Tour Guide of the Year for the UK. There's a a host of awards. So it went from uh, very thin, painful beginnings to something that has become quite phenomenally successful in many ways and actually sometimes against the the odds because there was a lot of political opposition to us both within some of the the tourist authorities at the time there was opposition in the local media, for example. We had a one local, not journalist, an academic who has an opinion or had an opinion piece in one of the local papers, did an absolute hatchet job on us, having not been on the tour. Uh, and that set us back hugely with the, the, tour, you know, the uh, tourism bodies. But again, we overcame that and our relationships with all those uh, bodies today are fantastic. But it did. It started back in 2012. Mark was reading an article about dark tourism and it really just started to generate from there. It's interesting when you say about the opposition there because I remember yeah. actually when it started off, um, I mentioned it to a former UVF man, mm-hmm. um, you know, saying there's this new tour, my, my mate's involved in it. And he said, well, that sounds a bit, sounds a bit close to the bone, a bit distasteful, you know. And I was trying yeah. to say, no, look, wait a minute. Um, I've been on this tour and it's it's, you know, it's not like that. It's not tacky or anything. It's very sensitively done. Um, so, so what was you say about the reaction from the tourist authorities and, and that academic you mentioned there? What what was the thrust of their objections? Well, it's sort of understandable, and they are the kind of things that come up in this tour. And whether if you, you say you were doing this tour in another conflict zone, and it was where you haven't exactly come out of the conflict, you know, a lot of the stuff is within the living memory that you're actually in a physical zone, say, I mean, you're standing castle and talking about the upper corners, people walking past, and they may have been witness, they may remember that day, it may have directly affected them or their family, and given the number of people who were so grotesquely injured at the Abercorn, numerically, you don't have to throw a stone too far before you hit somebody in Belfast who has an Abercorn tail. So there's that proximity, that chronological issue of time, and then there's the sort of the, the broader philosophical and moral issues of... You know, are you are you uh, cashing in on violence? Are you making uh, money out of other people's misery? Is this some sort of ghoulish Olympics? Now, we had to deal with all that. And in our preparation uh, that I outlined previously, we were trying to avoid, you know, stepping on people's toes, those sensitivities. We were doing our best to make it a, a sensitive uh, handling, overview, analysis, conversation, whatever way you want to put it about what was what did happen in our city centre. So it was nearly inevitable that those things were going to come about. The problem actually was that the Visit Belfast Centre initially supported us. They actually sent some of their staff out on a tour to say, yeah, we can verify this product, we can verify this, this is actually really, really good. And that's what they did. But unfortunately, this article appeared in the Belfast Telegraph and it ripped us to shreds. We contacted the writer and said, look, you haven't been on the tour, would you like to come out on it? Never responded. So it ends up in circulation and we had a, an incident pertaining to the killing of an off-duty police bar, uh, officer in the city centre bar. It was in the early 90s that was, uh, that was uh, contentious and members of that person's family read the article and they were very upset and they complained to Belfast City Council and, you know, fair play, I mean, that's, that's absolutely within their right. Um, and at that point there was panic stations and Visit Belfast withdrew their support, wouldn't sell their tickets, we, you know, had withdrew our leaflets from their premises. Um, and one of the part of the issues here is, and this is why I think in a funny way some of those entities, although they caused us a lot of hassle, are sort of blameless. There's no conflict tourism policy still in Northern Ireland. You know, there's a huge big void here. And when that void was filled with something very unpleasant, this article and the response of one family, 
uh, they just did what most statutories and various other bodies did was they went into self-preservation and protect mode and uh, that I was actually talking in a coffee shop this morning to somebody I know who was on the management committee of Visit Belfast at the time and him and I had worked together previously in community education and uh, he said, I remember that time, Donzo, he said, like, it was really, really fraught. He said, Visit Belfast were just, you know, petrified of what this might do to their, and their, you know, their reputation, their integrity, other things that they were trying to do. And he said, so it was just damage limitation. And he said, in a funny way, it wasn't a reflection on, on DC tours. It was a reflection on the greater issues that face any sort of travel tour of this nature. It's happened in other societies, you know, um, it's just, it's so deeply sensitive. We actually have a, a record of correspondence because we had numerous meetings with DC or with uh, Visit Belfast in the aftermath of all this to try and resolve the situation. And one of the things that they outlined was that they could no longer endorse us because we were in danger after the event of causing offence by talking about the conflict in the shared space of the city centre. So you're getting into the bigger social and political zeitgeist there. Um, the, the practice had been to send people out primarily to West Belfast to look at peace walls and murals. Nobody was, and you go into you go into the Shankle, you go into the Falls, you go into zones that have a dominant political narrative or some degree of consensus about what happened to them, what those people did to us over there. That's what's on the walls. That's the memorial gardens. City centre uh, has incredibly little uh, memorial commemoration of those events. I mean, there's absolutely nothing to tell you what happened at the Abercorn. There's nothing on Oxford Street about the explosions of Bloody Friday. So we have this neutral zone uh, and we were effectively coming into that neutral zone to talk about those issues which were sensitive and of which there was no guiding policy. So inadvertently, not intentionally, we trod onto a terrain which was very, very fragile and it took a long time to resolve that. But resolve it, we did. Donald, do you think that sort of highlights that, that it's not a shared space? It's a sanitised space where they just want you to forget that in this little bubble yeah, this happened because it's a hot potato that nobody wants to tackle. Yeah, I think there's an element of that. I mean, I think your, your terminology, some people would debate, but I can understand where you're coming from. It's a shared space in the sense that people are employed there together. People uh, shop in the same areas. People go to the same bars and restaurants in the city centre. It is socially shared in that sense and to an extent always was, even before the conflict emerged. However, it's a, it's a zone because we theoretically share it um it's like the elephant in the room well we'll not talk about all those things it's easier to talk about uh, uh what what happened in 72 on the falls with the shankle or Polly mccart or on the bog side it's not really easy to talk about it in castle lane when you're standing outside the abercorn nobody had really tried to do this before so it was uh, really was uncharted waters when i've inadvertently found in the title of davy irvine's uh, biography by henry sinnerton there um, you know, but it was it was uncharted waters, and this was the the thing that many people and I was asked about this this morning. How did you resolve that relationship with those bodies who had clearly just sort of moved away from you, going unclean? Well, what we did, we did many things. We lobbied, we argued with them. It didn't come to any uh, <laughs> any sound resolution for us. Uh, we had a lot of friends in other places, and they were raising you know people from. Some of the tourist bodies say we're going to events and local city councillors are walking up to them and saying, what's the problem with DC tours? We know these guys like they're, you know, they're they're actually producing and delivering a very well researched balanced tour, which is, yes, political, but not party political or partisan in any way. It presents many different interpretations. It discusses legacy issues. The irony is the tourist bodies are actually promoting, you know, are supporting Republican tours and loyalist tours, which is absolutely legitimate, of course. But when you have a sort of sensitive, balanced one, you've actually stepped away from it. That doesn't really go with the dynamic of where we're meant to be going in this place and all the rest of it. And at the end, one of the things that happened was uh, Mark, uh, through conversation, basically said to uh, the tourist authorities, why don't you assess us? Why don't you greet us? Why don't you come and see again what it is we're doing? You know, and it is the secret shopper process where they send somebody out once a year. You know, they'll say this, it'll be in March or sometime around then. So you're going out in March, going, fuck, you have to get every single thing in this right from road crossing regulations, never mind the sensitivities of whether you say Derry or London Derry. I say both continually. Um, you know, and when we sort of unilaterally put ourselves out there, well then, 
they responded positively and we are now graded uh, on an annual basis and we started off with excellent, we got excellent again and we're now at the top of the notch with outstanding uh, and very, very few, if any, uh, of the sort of political conflict related tours have ever been assessed in that way. They're just given pretty much free license to go out there and do what they want to do. So we put a, a potential noose around our necks, but it actually liberated us because it proved our integrity and uh, the quality of what it is we deliver. Don't go back to what you're saying there about it. It's an unbiased approach, and I have no doubt that it is. Um, Gareth vouches for that. But there, there is a sort of there is an opinion within the community that I'm from that these tours, especially the black taxi tours and the, and the bus tours, are, are one-sided. They get a narrative coming through. Now, I know that we always take this, not victim approach, but as if we're being oppressed approach. Um, how do you ensure that yours is balanced? Well, one of the things that certainly I do in my introduction and all the other guys do is that we do emphasise that it doesn't come from an organisational or political perspective. One of the things that I say every day in my introduction is we advocate none of these positions. We present how you conclude and how you interpret it as your gift. We don't seek to direct you on that. And we're very, very clear about that. So you will have a situation, say you're talking about a controversial RUC killing of an IRA member, say Martin Forsyth, which is on our tour outside the Celeb Club, was CNA with the premises above. It's now the disused uh, WH Smith uh, site. So you're talking about an IRA bomb attack um, and then you're talking about an unexpected police intervention. Um, one of the outcomes of that is that one of the IRA members, she is shot in the spine and paralysed for the rest of her life. And one of the IRA members is shot dead by the RUC. Uh, he shot twice initially, then there's a, like a, a, then a gap and then he shot another two times. So you enter the remit of controversy there in terms of process and procedure. And one of the things I always do at the end is I do like a synopsis and I do specifically say it's not my role to adjudicate in these situations but what I suggest is that for many in say one community there was uh, evidence of a, an aggressive police force who didn't make an intervention medically that could have been arrest that's their interpretation for another community to say well Martin Forsyth he joined an illegal organization he went out with a gun in his hand he traumatized civilians at gunpoint and joined the night out we have absolutely no sympathy. He's complicit in his own downfall. And then I make the concluding point. From my perspective, one of the great issues we faced here was that when it came to many very controversial political issues in which we had already been socialised in our homes and in our communities, um, we were already we already carried different understandings theoretically. Then you get the event, which is politically arguably complex, and it's highly charged. It's emotional because you have violence and death by all the parties. Um, and what is the legacy of that? That in this issue, policing, and in many others, employment, cultural identity, we were very often in parallel universes, and these events tended to compound the understanding that we already had. You know, so that doesn't advocate oh the Republicans are right, Martin Forsyth shouldn't have been shot, or the Unionists or the police and community are right, he deserved to be shot. It doesn't take any of those positions. It makes suggestions about why people understood these events differently. So that's, that's where we seek to get the balance. And the other thing is, of course, if you're talking about the city centre, clearly the majority of violence was Republican because of the economic bombing campaign, the commercial targets. Um, most loyalist attacks on commercial premises were outside the city centre. They were in nationalist areas, Republican areas, Catholic areas. They tended to be bombings of public houses, for example. So you can even see different patterns there. So what it means numerically is that most of the incidents we cover in the city centre are of Republican violence. And that's not to take a dig at Republicans. It's just a simple reflection of the primary violence there was Republican. We do cover loyalist violence. And in the killing of Martin Forsyth, you're looking at both arguably Republican violence, because it's initially a Republican uh, attack. And then there's a state response, which leads to his death. So you have another aspect of the, of the violence that was there. But, I mean, we've had people, you know, from right across the communities of, of this place. We've had former, uh, we've had a former Sinn Féin councillor on the tour. We've had people from Republican backgrounds. We've had members of the Apprentice Boys, the Red Hand Commando on the tour. And, you know, and they've all walked away sort of going, that's pretty firm balanced. Everybody gets a hit in it and everybody gets a voice in it, you know. So, you know, so if there's somebody essentially from the unionist community, 
because I think that's maybe what you're alluding to, uh, who says these tours are very uh, biased. I understand that. Some of them very, very clearly are, and they don't pretend to be otherwise quite frequently. Ours, even in terms of the focus of the city centre, you know, you're talking about you're talking about the Abercorn. You're talking about uh, Oxford Street and Bloody Friday. It's hard for anybody to walk away going, that's a pro-Republican tour. If we were saying the IRA were absolutely right in doing all these things, and of course the Abercorn full of civilians and women and children Saturday afternoon was a legitimate target in circumstances, I understand people saying that's political bias. They don't go anywhere near that. So I'm thinking, you know, when you get visitors from different countries, you get visitors from all over the world, and all mm-hmm. the reviews have been positive. But do you, do you find it challenging that, you know, certainly people come to Northern Ireland, they take a tour like yours, and they would have a binary understanding of the conflict here, of goodies and baddies. So, yeah. if, as you say there, if you're talking in the main about Republican activities because it's the city centre, uh-huh. do you ever find people having their perceptions challenged and thinking, well, maybe this isn't how I, how I understood the conflict before I came here to, to visit the well, we have had people articulate that at the end of the tour and the conversations that inevitably and naturally ensue afterwards because we, we encourage those. I mean, we don't just go right there. You go, there's your tour over. I mean, not yesterday, Saturday, I spent an hour and 15 minutes still standing on Oxford Street at the end of the tour being absolutely quizzed and examined about everything from punk rock to Brexit by people who'd been on the tour. So it actually sometimes lasts a bit longer than the, the official strap line and organisational uh, construct. Um, you do get a binary, but it's not necessarily that there were good guys and bad guys. The binary tends to be that there were Catholics and Protestants, and they were at war with each other. And then when you start getting into the nuances of, you know, that there were, say, even within the Republican community, there was the official Republicans, the Provisionals, the NLA, that within the Loyalist community there were different groupings, and that they sometimes were like a Venn diagram. There were certain places where obviously they crossed each other, I and mean, the official IRA and the Provisional IRA wanted a Republic. How you get that republic's a very, very different issue. So very often people walk away at the end of the tour, and I actually, some people would say, well, is that what you really want? But I actually think it's a bit of an accolade. A lot of people walk away saying, this is much more complex than I thought. And then people say, you know what, I really want to pursue this. Do you have a reading list? Do you have a movie list? Do you have things that you recommend? And we will give that verbal and sort of direction and then very often people email afterwards and say you know I, we got an email the other day it was a guy i took out three weeks ago he supported walsall that always sticks in my head because there are not many of them about and i have friends who actually do support walsall bizarrely and he sent a message three weeks an email three weeks after the tour saying it was it was fantastic he absolutely loved it and him and his wife have been talking continually about what happened here ever since and then the inevitable or the very often what would you recommend that we pursue to get a greater understanding of this? So people walk away going, yeah, you know what, there's not a binary there. There's a lot of complexities and I want to examine this more. And that, to me, can only be good. And you've, you've talked in, in um, your promotional material for the tour about how you enjoy doing the tour because it's real, powerful and cathartic. Yeah. So we're, 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 I mean, because I, I find the idea of catharsis and confronting some of these issues head on and talking about them and Mm-hmm. As you guys do, imbibe in the atmosphere, walk in the streets, putting you know mm-hmm. shoe leather on the ground. Yeah, what is that catharsis, and, and and what does it feel like to you when you're when you're doing yeah. the tour? Um, there's well, the catharsism is sometimes there's the immediate sort of uh, the immediate hit at the end of the tour. You know, there's twenty five people stand on applauding, which is nice. You know, your your ego gets a bit of a massage there. Uh, people who want to talk to you, people who say, what's your opinion on this and what should, what do you suggest we read? I mean, that's a very positive reinforcement. It's cathartic in the sense as well that, uh, you know, I'm not just a tour guide. I'm somebody who was born in 1968. <laughs> I was born on the 5th of November 1968. On the 5th of October, you have the Civil Rights March up on uh, the waterside, actually. And I was going to say the bogside, but it was the waterside where you have that RUC civil rights breakdown of relationships televised to the world, Labour MPs. You know, when you grow up in a fucking society like that, sorry, well, I just swear, by the way. Yeah. Good, good, good. Uh, when you grow up in a society like that, I mean, you're nobody. Nobody is, uh, no man is an island. You know, you cannot be affected by this. And there have been points in the tour where sometimes I have realised something that never occurred to me before. You're having this internal monologue sometimes, even though you're talking to a group of 25 people or whatever. 
there are times, I'll have to be honest about this, and I know it's happened to all our guides, you'll be talking about something that you've talked about thousands of times before, and you'll suddenly find a catch in your throat. And suddenly that emotional return, and you realise that you're not a robot, that you're not absolutely immune to all this stuff. You know, six years and four months into touring, suddenly something you've talked about so many times will still catch that emotional moment, and you remember what it was like to really grow up here. That's that's cathartic, that little bit of something coming out. There is a downside. Sometimes you think, God, all I talk about all day is bloody violence. That can be a bit depressing as well. But you also need to acknowledge that and realise that, that that is another impact of this place. Um, I got a wee bit of flack a while ago when I uh, came out and said that I had, despite all my anticipations, really, really friggin' enjoyed the Kenneth Branagh Belfast movie. And then I wrote a blog piece about why I had enjoyed it so much. And part of it was this. It was nearly an antithesis to everything that I've done for the last 30 years in terms of mediation, uh, political education, dialogue, conflict resolution. It's quite exhausting. I'm talking about talking about Bloody Friday nearly every day of your life is exhausting. And one of the things I liked about the Branagh movie, it didn't pretend to be, as far as I read it, you know, a truth. It was the view of the world through the, the eyes of a nine-year-old boy. And I actually found that quite cathartic as well. Uh, I, I, relief I was, from the constant dark cloud that you can carry sometimes. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about Belfast there, and I'll, I'll let Sam come in, but uh-huh. because it's been released recently on all the streaming platforms, and there's people, again, sort of criticising it and saying, oh, it's not true to what life was like in Belfast at the time. And yeah. look, at the end of the day, as you say, it's it's from a child's perspective. It's meant to be seen that way. But for me, it obviously I didn't grow up at that period, but haven't studied that period, particularly within loyalism. The very insipid growth of these guys um, in the community who thought, well, look, we can see, you know, the uh, potential to gravitate above people and sort of get a bit of power. Yeah. And I, I found that really interesting. I thought that was very accurate and how that sort of dovetailed. You know, at the time it was seen as a short-term fix to what was going yeah. on in the community. But then what we know with history is that it, it, it sort of snowballed from that. And you can see accurately the very early se- seeds of that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I thought there was points about it actually where it slightly undersold itself. And one of the ones I had conversations with several friends in different countries who you know had a whole range of reactions to it, most favourable. But there seemed to be a definite confusion about the opening street scene, where there's people coming into the street and there's clearly conflict on the street. And then about who was on the barricades around that community thereafter and what was going on. And I think my reading of it was that you had an attack on the very few Catholic families living in the area at the time. And the barricade that goes up is actually a sort of cross-community barricade. or uh, Not a cross-community barricade, it's predominantly Protestants and Loyalists, but they're being protective of the community within their street or whatever. And that includes the Catholic community. And some people say, well, that's bollocks, that never happened. Previous state here. Previous state before Bloody Friday. There were, and it's very well documented, there were, because the population of Craigie at the time was about 15% Catholic. You know, and that wasn't unusual in, in East Belfast. There was a Catholic minority in the Braniel. There was a significant Catholic population in the Woodstock and Willowfield. There was Clondoff, had a lot of Catholic families, and they tended to be concentrated in a particular area of the state. Craigie had uh, a vigilante system in uh, 7071 in which it was about protecting the minority within the estate. You know, and people said, oh, it didn't happen. Well, it did. It broke down. Certain key events, particularly Bloody Friday, seemed to have been a watershed for many people. Um, there was a young Catholic guy, I think he was a teenager, Peter McCauley, was shot dead outside the local shops down at Greenway. About 3,000 people gathered and had a protest against that type of violence within the, in the anti-Catholic violence in Craiga. Now, I'm not trying to paint this utopian picture. There was plenty of people who clearly wanted to get Catholics out of Craiga or prods out of Lanadoon, whatever the dynamic and the arithmetic was. But there was a period before, really 72, because we all know, like Malachi O'Doherty's written about it recently, 72 really becomes that year where everything that had been tenuously holding together through 69, 70, 71 rips apart. We just cannot sustain the relationships when you have those seismic events. Um, but prior to that, there were people who made efforts. And I actually think that Belfast, the Branham movie, does touch upon that, but doesn't really make it very clear. 
And actually, if it had made it clear, it would have been another dynamic to the movie. And I think people's responses would have been interesting. A lot of people, some people said to me, was that the IRA attacking Tigers Bay? Or was that such and such a group doing this? And I said, no, I don't think it really is, you know. But in your point then about the, I mean, there's obviously a figure in the Belfast movie who the da gets into conflict with. And part of that breakdown relationship further compounds his desire to get away as well as his economic problems. It's quite understated. I think a lot of people, mm-hmm. many people outside who do see this place in a binary way, why would they have got the notion that there were people inside both Republican and Loyalist communities who said, no, I, I don't want power wrestling with a particular small organisational group. I don't want certain individuals becoming these dominant figures who have a who have a veto, who have a, a discretion over who remains and who doesn't remain within our community. You know, the outsiders don't get that. And actually, a lot of people here don't get that. They've forgotten about it or they never knew about it. That's like John Darby did some research in the early 70s on, you know, intimidation and housing. Absolutely. And he talked about in Rathcool, of all places, you know, how there were Catholics there who approached the UDA. You know, before the UDA became like a sort of killing machine, they approached the UDA to offer their help in defending the area. Defending there, yeah. Yeah, and, and then ultimately, as you say, with stuff like Bloody Friday happening, then things calcified and loyalists thought, no, we've got something happening in here. We yeah. don't want these people in the community. And then, yeah. you know, but but all you hear about Rathcool is Bobby Sands. So, yeah. you know, that's that's a, a valid narrative, but there's another side to the story as yeah. well that we need, to, become, we need to hear about. the dominant narrative, essentially. Absolutely. And I mean, the thing with Belfast, and not to go off on a tangent about Belfast, but one of the other things that really annoyed me about that it's Max Hastings did an article about it, and he said, "Look, this doesn't remind me of the the Protestant working class community I met when I was over uh-huh. here at the start of the Troubles." Yeah. And he said, "They're they're far too well dressed and all this sort of stuff." And it's like, yeah, working class people did dress well. You know, it's like yeah. people dressed up on a Friday night to go out. And I don't, I know, you know, um, Jamie Dornan too handsome. You know, there's no way people in the in Tigers Bay would have looked like that. And it's just, oh my goodness. <laughs> Well, I don't know, Garth, if you've read my blog piece. It's on the DC website. One of the things I said was people said they're too good-looking and they're too well-dressed. And I said, well, for fuck's sake, I said, like, you know, we're not all totally facially challenged in Belfast. There are some good-looking people have emerged. You know, I'm looking at our present company, and that's evidence to that, you know. Um, (laughs) I'm glad this is audio and not visual, by the way. Um, You you look again, and I also said about the point, that bit, that scene after the Da's funeral, uh, the man, da, the glamorous scene, the song scene, and all the rest of it. And I said, well, you know what? You know, like, you know, this is a kid looking at his man, da. You're nine years old. You haven't hit puberty yet. You still think your man, da, are glamorous, you know, and they're up singing a duet together. To this kid, this is like, this is the palladium. This is, you know, this is the most glamorous thing. And I also said, one of the things about that scene, again, that people don't pick up on because they're looking at the glamour and saying, that's not, that's not realistic. It's actually in a social club. The movie makes it clear it's in a social club after a funeral. And I said, how many funerals have I been to where you go to a social club afterwards? You know, you go to the, you go to, well, I wouldn't, but you go to the John the Street Blues Club or you go to the Felons or you go to the the Westburn Glens Club. You know, that's where a lot of these things take place. So in that sense, the movie was quite realistic. And it's a funeral. What do people do at funerals? They quite often unwind. That's the celebration of life part. They have a drink. They let themselves go. They get up and sing. You know, they want the, they want the feel positive after the grief and the stress of a funeral. And okay, it is glamorised because the wee lad's nine and he thinks his man and dad, you know, the sun shines out of them. And I thought there's actually bits in there, the social club, having a bevy, letting yourself go. That's all pretty realistic. And to be honest there, Don's as well, you'd probably wear your Sunday best at a funeral. So you would be wearing your glamorous clothes as, as kids would see yeah. it. Uh, yeah. You wouldn't That's be wearing your, your nine suit. to fives. Yeah, you would, you'd have the suit on that maybe only got on there and maybe three times a year. But yeah. to a child, that, that, yeah, well, so yeah. I I just wanted to go back to your your bit earlier on about when when you're given the tour and, and it sort of catches your throat and yeah. that emotion comes back. Do you ever have the tourists who are standing listening? suddenly realise what it is and it's not a movie that they watched on TV at the 6 o'clock news and this didn't happen in a faraway place and it was all just sort of made up this this becomes real for them do you, do you ever get those moments of epiphany where suddenly dawns that real people suffered? Absolutely, I mean I wouldn't say they happen every single day but they happen regularly enough to be part of the 
the consistent sort of uh, thread of many of the tours. I'll give you an example. A number of years ago, a couple of years ago, before COVID, I, there's a guy, he's actually originally from the Shangle, but he lives in Wales now. He's from Glencairn. A fluent, this is great, he's a fluent Danish speaker. He's now a fluent Welsh speaker. He's from Glencairn and he's a fluent Irish speaker and has been for many, many years. Uh, and he, this is an old friend of mine, Lavery's Connections, Queen's Connections. And he brought a group of these big Welsh rugger buggers over for the tour and they did it on the Saturday morning. I'm not joking you. I'm doing Bloody Friday and quite often it's Bloody Friday it tends to, to be a biggie. Um, and these big Welsh ruggy bu- rugger buggers who drink loads of pints and all, several of them were very clearly crying. Now I know the Welsh can be an emotional people, but when you get the big rugger buggers standing crying on the Saturday morning on Oxford Street, you think you're hitting a chord here. This is a very human thing. Um, we've had quite a lot of reviews, like if you go on our TripAdvisor reviews, uh, I'm just thinking of a recent one where somebody said, like, we watched this from afar, we knew oh, it wasn't good. But we just did not realise how all this permeated every aspect of life. You know, just how cutting through, just how nitty gritty and raw this was on a daily basis. Because, I mean, when I'm touring, I'm not just talking about, you know, a £5 jelly night bomb packed with shrapnel went off in a crowded restaurant. I talk about the human legacies, people I know who were there. You know, and I don't go into great detail about those persons. And any do that I do name, I do so with their consent. I think there's a strong uh, uh, issue there. But, you know, about the people who today can't walk along through certain uh, parts of the city centre because of what they encountered that day, what they witnessed. And then sometimes it's just witnessed. They weren't actually physically hurt themselves. People who can't walk along Castle Lane because they revisit sights, sounds and smells that they encountered there as an onlooker that day. And I'm saying 50 years on, a person can't walk up that street. That's post-traumatic stress. And it's half a century later. I talk about the introduction of internment without trial and I tell a story and I've only told it uh, in the last year and a bit of somebody I know who was interned in the first wave in 71 so he's obviously from a, a Republican Catholic nationalist background and I was out on a tour on the 9th of August on the 50th anniversary and this guy he now has uh, Parkinson's disease very powerfully built but he came around the corner on his walking frame so I looked over at him greeted him and said good morning Jordy he's not called Jordy and he said to me, where are you so? And I said, what day is it today? And I'd just been talking about internment to the group. And he didn't say it's Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday. He just said internment. And then on his walking frame, he slowly moves off. And you can just see the group going. You know, the, the faces dropping, the colour nearly draining out. And I've often used that example of a friend of mine who cannot walk up Castle Lane 50 years later. And that guy, when he was asked what day it was, and he said internment, and he says, there it is. There's the living human proof, the human personalised legacy, not a political legacy, of the fact that, you know, you chronologically 50 years ago, you know, somebody in the group, that's a hell of a long time ago. If you have lived that experience, it's it can be yesterday, you know, and it's, it's getting that human dimension. Putting it all into political context happened as a result of this, you know, what were the responses? But here's a human response 50 years after the event. And that can be very powerful for people. Have I lost? No, oh, are you back? Oh. Back again. I lost you there for a second, sorry. Did I? We lost, we lost a picture there. Did the sound go as well? Yeah, but that's okay. For a couple we'll, of seconds, for, yeah. Right. Just a wee, wee bit. Um, it's, it's interesting when you say there, you know, particularly about Bloody Friday. I mean, I remember the point that you made that... Um, one of the only physical remnants of that of that part of Belfast now, where where the at the bus station, yeah, is the pump house, yeah, which is now right. I believe being made into a restaurant, yeah. But for me, and you you know, there are things people encounter on the tour. People might have heard of Bloody Friday, they might have heard of the Abercorn, mm-hmm. this that and the other, yeah. But the, Sammy, the killing of Sammy McLeave, yeah. um, which as you know, I'm really interested yeah. in, and you know, I've done a lot of work on, yeah. Um, it was, it was actually on the back of doing your tour um, all those yeah. years ago that made me look into it again. But that, that wee area, the car park in Hill Street, mm-hmm. where he was found mm-hmm. ha- hanged, um, you know, that, that hasn't changed physically a hell of a lot. But the, but the strange thing is that part of the city centre, that's where the nightlife is now. Yeah. So you have a lot of younger people who'll be there yeah. socialising, and they won't be aware that these sort of things happened. Yeah. So what, what 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 do you what do you find when when tourists come over, and okay they hear about Bloody Friday and and the the, the big atrocities that you know were known globally. Let's mm-hmm. just say, what are the reactions when they hear about these more sort of less less well known killings, basically? 
Well, again, that's something I try to put into context. Uh, I mean, if you start with a celeb club where Martin Forsyth, you know, was was killed by the, the police and where about 300 civilians who'd been joined the night out are absolutely traumatised. People are dropping out of the back of the building. There's physical injuries. You know, there's this huge number. And I always say to people, how many of you have heard of this? <laughs> Nobody. And I say, of course you haven't. There's people here would have minimal knowledge or recollection of it unless they were there on the night. It's October 1971. And I always say, and it's a snowflake in an avalanche. I said, it's not Bloody Sunday. It's not Bloody Friday. It's not Anaskillanoma or any other event that happened here. And yet you have 300 people traumatised. You have a young man, whatever you think of his actions and his politics, killed. You have a young woman paralysed for life. You have a guy going to jail. You have dozens of civilians physically injured by dropping from window ledges and you have about 300 civilians absolutely traumatised because they have to run past a lead bomb not knowing when it's due to detonate and I go but it's a small incident so when you start with that and for us the, the Celeb Club is one of those scene setters and we use it quite deliberately because it's not the Abercorn bomb that people may have heard of and you're saying this is the, this is the emotional psychological impact of these acts of violence on ordinary civilians who were joined a night out and you can sort of, so rather than hitting with a big, here's the upper corner, here's Bloody Friday or whatever else, you actually start with something which is essentially very small. But its impacts are absolutely enormous, affecting hundreds of people. And I think that starts to get them really thinking about, my God, what was it like to live here every day? You know, in the photographs of the Ring of Steel and the search processes, the gates shutting from 68 in a phase format every evening, buses not leaving the city centre, or leaving the city centre, at the latest at eight o'clock in the evening for you know and start to say you know and people you can see people looking and going my god say i was in a nightclub in nottingham and i came out and there was all these big lock gates and there were soldiers standing around with guns and there was no buses or transport you know you start to put it in the put these shoes on and see what it was like to live here and i think that has a big impact because you're dealing with a wee small issue or a small event yeah you know so i think that that I get people sometimes from places like London who say, yeah, I remember, you know, we had the checkpoints and you were getting search going down into the underground and all, but it was periodic. It happened every now and again, usually after an event. You guys live with that in some shape or form for 25 years and you can really see them trying to comprehend what that was like. And of course, they can't, you know, and even that in itself is a learning outcome. I can't comprehend what it was like to live here. And we go, yeah. We got used to it. The, 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 norm, the, the abnormal became the normal. Yeah, I mean, in many other places in the UK, would you get search going into a shop? Not on the way out. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I went out of it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I suppose the other thing that the visitors get a sense of is in, in sort of two square miles, the amount of incidents, yes, they're built up over a number of years, mm-hmm. but they're compacted on, on one on top of the other. Every corner mm-hmm. you turn, there's an incident to, to talk about. Um, and that's just the city centre. So that gives them a flavour of what Belfast, Northern Ireland, whatever else is like. How how do you select what to talk about and what not to talk about? Because as far as I can see, that you have an abundance of incidents that you could cover. How yeah. how do you how do you sort through what what goes in and what doesn't go in? Well, I mean, the tour has changed over the. I mean, it's been going for a decade, so some things have naturally, uh, organically, sort of grown. I mean, the first tour was physically, geographically longer. And then still, as we were finding out more information about some of the points on the tour, it got to the point. The tour used to go out around the art college, uh, round to uh, Curtis Street, where just where around Academy, where Billy Reid of the Provisionals was shot dead, um, said to be the first man, the guy who killed Gunnar Curtis, ironically. Uh, it went out further around to the bottom of the markets where Joe McCann was shot dead by the Parachute Regiment just before the, the official IRA ceasefire, and it included Jerry Adams being shot round just past the, the Danska Bank and the, the Washington Bar. It became so big that we actually had to draw back on some of those because of the geography. We found so much more detail about what it was that we were talking about inside the, the other issues that they became more time-consuming. We did have to drop one specific incident because of the issue that arose out of the Belfast Telegraph and the, the, the family response and the response of the statutory and the, the tourist bodies. How did we choose them? Well, again, I go back to sort of my, my opening about what were the origins of DC tours. We we did. We sat with the uh, the lost lives and we looked at this. Some of it was geographically uh, influenced. 
uh, how long, how many things can you deliver in a two and a quarter, two and a half hour tour within a certain physical space. So that's why we did the dry runs, even just walking around. You know, there was lots of very dry, uh, sort of scientific, methodological uh, issues that we took in. And we wanted to have a mixture. I mean, it would be very hard to walk up Castle Lane and not talk about the Abercorn. Some things nearly selected themselves. That sort of made it easy. But we also wanted to bring in those smaller incidents, which are so illustrative of the nature of conflict and the impact that it had on individuals, families and citizens as they went about their everyday life. So things like the Celeb Club came into that, Samuel McCleave killing. The Heart Bar is slightly better known because people knew that it was the punk bar, but it had been attacked before. There's a vague sort of cognitiveness about that. So sometimes it was just a judgment call. And in terms of the fact that you're doing a tour, it's also, uh, I wouldn't like to use the term performance, but it is something whereby you want to have an impact. You know, there's that aspect to it. And which events tended to have an impact? Well, you could say they all have an impact, but we 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 wanted to get that mixture of the big ones that are shockers and the smaller ones that are shocking in their different way. And that's why, again, we brought people out with us, you know, people who were journalists, people who had been a member of an organisation. One person was an ex-police officer. That was an interesting experiment, actually. You think about it, walking around with somebody who'd been in a loyalist flute band, somebody who'd been in the official IRA, somebody who was a nationalist elected representative, uh, somebody who had been in the RUC, and they're all walking around giving their feedback on all these events. You know, it was a rich, it was a rich uh, uh, sort of uh, group that we used uh, to, to get that. And I think that actually worked very, very effectively, very, very effectively. So is there a great sense to it? Yes, some of the logistical issues, there was a great sense, and some of the rest of it was just value judgments, most of which we think we got very, very right with assistance from others, but one we got very, very badly wrong, and that led to a lot of problems for us, which just illustrates you get one thing wrong out of everything, and it's the squeaky wheel. That's the thing that everybody hears, you know. So we learned the hard way. Well, just to round off, Don, so, you know, the, the pandemic was obviously difficult for a lot of industries, but I'm sure, you know, for, for yourselves, it was extremely difficult, but it also, it allowed you guys to branch out a bit um, in terms yeah. of the app, and yeah. there was different tours that came on the back of the pandemic, wasn't there, and the Line of Duty tour and the, the Peace Walls and, and stuff yeah, like that? Yeah, well, 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 we had already done a West Belfast tour. We did various tailored tours and ad hoc tours when people made specific requests, so it had been quite adapted before COVID at... Uh, not reinventing ourselves, but diversifying and being responsive. So we, today we have, obviously, we have the Best of Belfast tour, which is a much more generic thing, you know, in terms of art, culture, uh, religion, in a, in a more theological sense, uh, just the, the industrial heritage of the city, and all this stuff does play in the history of terror, but this is much more focused on that, uh, those different aspects of Belfast development. Um, so we've got the best of Belfast. We do have those uh, apps where people can do, you know, they can go to West Belfast on their own. They can go to the city centre on their own. They can do, yeah, the Line of Duty tour. And the other thing that we did during that period, of course, was that we went online um, and we did a sort of big, big, long history of the Troubles, literally going back to Strongbow in 1169 and Jeremy McMurray and all that there. And that was people coming in from around the world. Like, we had, God love, there was one poor woman who was so excited about it. She was in New Zealand. It was like half six in the morning. She'd been awake all night to stay awake to do this online tour, which was just a visual presentation with me doing an hour-long narrative, and then it was an hour of questions and answers. We had families in the United States, 12 of them all sitting in a room with their beers and popcorn and all, doing this stuff. Now, it was pretty exhausting. It was hard work. It was very different to a physical tour, but it still was very demanding. But... It kept us going, and it wasn't just the issue of finance. It was the issue of, we put a lot of energy into this, and then if you stop, you know, it's hard to, to holster and get that energy going again. And we thought, well, if we, we just sit here and go and get jobs somewhere else to, to fill in the financial gap during the, the COVID period, how realistically will we be able to galvanize ourselves and get back on our feet and do this? So part of it was financial but part of it was just keeping talking, keeping delivering, keeping the brain working. Uh, and those uh, those webinars were, were absolutely key uh, in doing that, you know. So, and I mean, that's that's credit to Mark, uh, the, the founder of, of DC Tours. He is brilliant at looking at the bigger picture and what can we do and what can we do better and how can we diversify and how can we respond to things like COVID, change it, you know, even things like cost of living crisis. Who's going to be coming here? What can they afford to spend? Mark is... Uh, 
he's got a brilliant mind for doing all, all that sort of stuff. I always say Mark's the brain, so the operation, and I'm just the good looks and honeyed voice. <laughs> well, look, I mean, here's the 10 more years and 10 more years after that of, of DC tours, because I think, you know, um, in terms of the, not just the tourist industry, but also the history and the, the understanding yeah. of this place, it's a, it's a very positive thing. And I definitely... You know, advocated the people coming Go over here. Have. Thank and, you very you know, much. No, no, no. It's 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 um. It's not just because you're a friend. It's because I've actually done the tour, and yeah. You also um mentioned my book, so that's that's obviously why. The more people who go on the mentioned. tour, the more people buy the book. You know, so it's um works works well. <laughs> yeah. What, what can I just say this just very briefly? One of the things that actually sometimes when you're like anything else and uh, or humans here in the midst of something, you don't sometimes see the bigger picture. You don't pick up on it. When we got that uh, that kicking in the Belfast Telegraph, then other papers and uh, talkback, like I was dragged on to talkback and you know, getting a pretty rough time, you know. Uh, but you find yourself becoming part of the zeitgeist of the city. And we hadn't fully appreciated that. And now we are aware, like we, uh, Mark approached uh, somebody to come on as a guide about a year or so ago. And this guy, brilliant, brilliant fellow, Stevie. Uh, said, you know, I was I was delighted. He said, I went home and I said uh, to my wife, he said, uh, the black jackets, the black coats approached me today to come and tour with them. And I said, what do you mean the black jackets, the black coats? <laughs> and he says, that's what everybody calls you guys around the town. You are like part of the fabric of the city centre. People yeah. talk about DC tours. These are these guys. And it's like, these are these guys who do this. And they are, these are the guys that you go to, you know. And you're suddenly going, geez, we're, we're now like the, you know, the street preachers or the, the buskers, although they all drive me absolutely insane with their infernal background noise, you've become, you're walking around talking about a terrain and then you find out you've become a part of it and you're recognised as such and that sort of makes you go, hey, we're we actually making a contribution to the city, you know, in a, in a, in a broader social vibrancy sense and I, I really like that. Yeah, you'll be part of the history eventually. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds a bit ominous, Garth. Do you know something Ooh. I don't? <laughs> <laughs> Not at all, Donzo. I'd, I'd, I'd always tip you off about stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, someday, someday one of my colleagues will be walking around talking about me in the tour as one of the subjects. <laughs> yeah. Don't want that to happen there. Don't want no, that to definitely not. No. <laughs> I think we're past all that. <laughs> Hopefully. But anyway, Sam, have you um, any further questions for... Donzo, or no, we'll let him go? I, I think we'll let him go this time, but I think we'll maybe get him back, because there's a few other facets there we could probably tap into, including the mm-hmm. conflict sort of resolution stuff that we've discussed briefly Absolutely. earlier on. Uh, I think we can maybe go through that again at some point in the future, so he's not adverse Certainly. to coming back on and talking to us too. Yeah, we'll no certainly get him back on. Brilliant. Happy to oh, Thank you, Donzo. Really thank appreciate you, it. Much appreciated. Thank, no, thank you for the opportunity. All right. See you soon. See you soon, Mark.